following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Downton Abbey, the guest, Beauty and the Beast, Murder on the Orient Express, Her, the Suicide Squad, Terminator, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, Game of Thrones, Star Trek, Tender Napalm, and... Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots, dinosaurs, or holographic images of people in a ballroom. I'm your host, Luigi, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week, and this week I am talking to actor, writer, theater artist, Leah McKenna-Garcia. Welcome, Leah. Thank you, Lou. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Leah, why don't you tell the listeners what movie we're going to be discussing on Robots vs. Dinosaurs today? Today, we will be discussing I'm Your Man, which is a new German film featuring Dan Stevens and a German actress who was excellent, whose name I don't know because she's not... Dan Stevens. <laughs> Good point. It does star Dan Stevens and some other people. Um, <laughs> there are other have, people in this film. <laughs> <laughs> not many, though. It's a, it's kind of like a small, tight movie. Um, it doesn't have a lot of set pieces or anything, but it works. I think that's, that serves the movie in a big okay. way. Um, the actor, the actor's name in question, the main, the main character or the main star of this movie, I would say, is Marin Eggert, if I'm pronouncing, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, the director is Maria Schrader. I looked up both of these people on IMDb, but all of their credits are, of course, uh, German movies or German television that I'm completely unfamiliar with. But I think listeners might be familiar with Dan Stevens. So Leah, where would we know Dan Stevens from? Well, Dan Stevens, of course, is Cousin Matthew on Downton Abbey. And when he decided to leave and broke the hearts of millions of viewers with his death, sorry, spoilers, if you're like <laughs> this many years late to the show, mm. I'm sorry, <laughs> he he died. I, I did go to um, Non Sequitur. I did go to Murray's Cheese in uh, New York. They have different classes. So you can like go and have a tasting and right before the lockdown happened, my mother and I, for Valentine's Day, we went to take a class about Downton Abbey-themed cheese and wine pairing. Wine. And there was a girl there with her boyfriend, um, and we were talking about different things about the show, and someone brought up the fact that Matthew had died, uh, and she was like, he does. And we were like, oh, oh. <laughs> so groaning. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's done so many things. So he, yes, of course, uh, Downton and then Legion. Um, mm -hmm. He was also a supporting character, a very funny supporting character in that Eurovision song contest movie that came out i think is it called fire and ice or is that just game of thrones is that what i'm thinking of now sounds it, right but it sounds like it could apply to both <laughs> right song of fire and ice uh and then he was the beast 
in the live mm-hmm. action Beauty and the Beast. Um, and he's also done some other independent things. Uh, he's such an interesting career and especially the choices he's made as an actor post a global phenomena and such mm-hmm. a specific piece like Downton. It's super interesting. And he was also in, uh, they did a film adaptation of Blythe Spirit recently. He's the lead in that. Mm-hmm. It's like a fun 1930s romp uh, sort of thing. And I'm yeah. familiar with him from Adam Weingard's The Guest. Have you seen The Guest? No. It's a really good thriller. He it, it, he comes home to this family and he says that he's like a friend of their son who died in combat. And he's like also a fellow soldier. Yeah. Okay. Like, I've heard of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, there's a lot of twists and turns. Like my, actually my question is I've, I've never, I've seen Dan Stevens in a couple things and I've never really realized like, what is his original accent? Is he from England? Is he originally British? Yeah. I think he's originally British. I think he's originally English. Um, but I don't know where in the UK he's from. So I wouldn't know if he was Northern okay. or whatever. And I think we, so we briefly chatted after we saw the film, but during the pandemic, I listened to a lot of books on tape because mm-hmm. I do a lot of crochet, yarn craft stuff. And I also, I'll listen while I'm jogging, whatever. And I was listening to a lot of Agatha Christie on tape and, um, he read Murder on the Orient Express. And David Suchet played Poirot, Agatha Christie's Poirot, for years and years and years on the television show. Famously, he has he has been in every incarnation of a Poirot story. Like every book, every short story, they filmed for that show. Um, he's also read a lot of the audiobooks. Uh, and... Dan Stevens read Murder on the Orient Express and his Poirot sounded exactly like David Suchet's Poirot. And so I was even more uh, impressed by Dan Mm. Stevens because of his excellent channeling of Suchet as Poirot. And David Suchet is the greatest Poirot of all time. I'm sorry, KB. I love you so much, but that mustache (laughs) is a joke. Um, It is. Yeah, it's unsettling. (laughs) Yeah, and you can't match you can't match David Suchet like the little walk like the 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 stuff that David Suchet is doing the level he is working on as Poirot is just like out of this world. It's so good. It's so good. But um, but yeah, but that's another. There's so many reasons to love Dan Stevens. Um, mm-hmm. and even as a creepy robot, he's endearing. Uh, so yeah, yeah. he's, he's kind of great. He's charming in any language. Um, I, I think yes. I first saw him in either, either the guest or in uh, Legion. And in both of those, he, he, I guess is doing an American accent, but like, since that was my introduction to him, I just thought that's how he talks until mm-hmm. I saw him in other things. And I was like, Oh wait, Oh, he does a really good British accent as ignorant as that statement is <laughs> what's I found out. He's from England. And and then in this movie, I'm Your Man, he is speaking in German the whole movie. But there, I do believe uh, the Alma, the main character, comments that he's speaking German with a British accent, which I think there's some commentary that like they deliberately designed him that way. So it would make more sense for his backstory. Right. 
Yeah, that she, something about, so I guess the, should we introduce the concept of the movie? Cause that features into this. So, so I guess the idea and clarify if I, if I miss out on something, but the idea is that, um, they're basically running an ethical trial for this new product and the product is your perfect partner. So you go, you answer all of these questions, and they've also done all of this field research in the general population from the country you're from, whatnot, to kind of find out what people like, and then also Mm. specific to you, what you would enjoy. And uh, the lead actress, what is her character's name? Just so we can refer to her that way. Alma. Alma. And uh, he is Tom. If that helps. And he's Tom. So Alma is a professor at a university that also has is linked in with a museum. And uh, she has been tapped as one of these people to give feedback on this trial. Um, but particularly with the focus of the ethics of this product? Like, is this something that should exist in the world? You know, what, Mm -hmm. what is the consequence of that? So she's supposed to have three weeks with this robot that is created for her. And we meet him very early on. They really don't, there's no like surprise uh, about the movie, which I kind of liked. They like meet you up front with exactly what this is. Yeah, they're already um, in like the beta testing stages, right. it seems. Yeah. Right. And so she takes him home and at some point she does ask him, well, why the British accent? And he says, well, you like men who are somewhat foreign. And then there's an explanation around why that is, which I like, I think a lot of uh, I don't know how it is for men, but I think a lot of women like the idea of a foreign accent. It's like, it's just, it's like different, right? There's something, mm-hmm. I, I don't want, really want to use the word exotic because that has a really negative connotation right now, but I can't think of a better word than exotic. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's it's part of it being the other. It's part of the mystery. It's part of the thing that's unfamiliar to you That is uh, that makes you want to know more about this person that keeps you interested in this person and you want to take a deep dive, that sort of thing. So well, it's, little, I don't know. it's little things like when somebody's talking and they use like unfamiliar slang, it makes you sort of sit forward a little more. So I think when you meet somebody that talks a little bit different from everybody you're used to, that's just sort of like naturally interesting because you have to pay attention a little bit more or certain things might pass you by. So I think that does maybe hack our brain a little bit, like when somebody has an accent. Yeah. Um, or it could be just as simple as uh, Harley Quinn says in the new Suicide Squad movie. Um, somebody says, uh, um, you Americans love accents. And she says, yeah, that's because we ain't got none. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is so why I... That. That is why I watch the UK Love Island versus the American. Mm. I just like, there's just no it's not as fun for me to watch the Americans. Mm. Um, but I do think it's a nice idea because I don't know if they wrote this script or were thinking about this project, thinking specifically about Dan Stevens. But if mm, you end up with point. that casting, that's such a nice workaround to explain why he would be speaking in that fashion. So even if that's something that's just added into the script later, just a super smart little detail to help us understand 
why this actor, why this character, why this voice in this piece, you know, in this body, in this robot body. Um, so just a great, just a great choice generally. It is. And it's such an, it's such a great little detail too. And it's, uh, it's definitely, it's more explanation than we really need, but the fact that we get it, I think colors the whole situation a lot better and makes him a more specific character too. Like you can imagine when they were building the Terminator or I, I guess I should say like when they were writing Terminator, I doubt the idea was uh, it speaks in an Austrian accent, but then you cast right. Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're like, right. okay, yeah, the robot from the future, that's just how it talks. And that's how it right, is. Exactly. But yeah, again, it's a German film. So if you're making mm -hmm. this for a German audience, you know, that's your primary audience because that's the language you're making it in. That's the country you're making it in. It does make sense to explain why this person has a specific dialect of their language. Yeah. Um, so yeah, or I, I guess it's, it is accent because it's mm -hmm. someone speaking a language that is secondary to the one they were raised with. So that's an accent versus a dialect, which is just a specific style form way of speaking in your primary accent or in your primary method of speech. Yeah, like a New York Language. dialect versus like an Alabama dialect. Exactly. You're speaking American English, but the dialect is based on that location and that culture within that location. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a big question that I always ask my guests. Um, mm -hmm. And I, uh, it depends on whether we're talking about a dinosaur movie or a robot movie. Um, since we're talking about a robot movie, Leah, in your own words, what is a robot? A robot is animatronic. It's something that is manufactured. It's uh, inorganic. And it does not have um, free will. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. What, is, what do you mean by free will? Well, I guess when I think about free will in terms of robots, I guess I'm thinking about programming and I'm thinking that any choice they make is based on a set of circumstances that they have been ready-made to deal with that they can't deal with something that is outside of that scope. Um, and also there are things they cannot and will not do because, or, or are not capable of doing because of their programming. Um, and also, you know, in terms of this film and specifically with Tom thinking about programming, his existence really ba was based around Alma. You know, without without Alma or without that human counterpart, you know, the robot doesn't exist because there's no there's no individual to have the needs of inserted into the robot, right? So yeah. and I and that's something that kind of comes up in their relationship that he's so porous, um in terms of being being so available to give her what she wants or what 
he thinks he wants or maybe what she wants and doesn't want to admit that she wants because it's too cringy. And when I say cringy, mm. it's like, you know, like too romantic. He runs her a bath. He's like, 78% of all German women love this. And she's like, well, guess what? I'm part of the, the 22% that doesn't. Um, when like, maybe she would like the bubble bath, but she's just being difficult. Uh, but yeah, you know, Tom doesn't really, he's not autonomous. Um, there's, uh, you said like, you know, I like that you said that he, he only exists because of Alma. He only exists sort of as like to serve a purpose for Alma. And that comes up towards the end when there's this ominous moment for Tom where we realize he's going to get recalled back to the factory and they don't really explicitly say it, but it's implied that he's going to be recycled, broken down for, you know, parts to make a new robot for somebody else. Because at that point, once Alma has rejected him, he no longer has a purpose. And like, that's, right. if you look at it from Tom's point of view, like that's a really ominous implication of robotics and the existence of robots is that they can only exist so long as they're serving the purpose that we built them for, Right. Right, right. And I think there, we also discussed this previously, but the idea is that the, the trial that she's doing is meant to be three weeks long. And so after mm -hmm. the three weeks, what is even supposed to happen to this robot anyway? You know, mm -hmm. does, does he just go back and then get reprogrammed and adjusted aesthetically for someone else? Um, does she, is she allowed to like keep him? Does she get a discount? because he was a, he was a sample floor model, you know, like what is, what is the other implication there? And we, and we don't get through the three weeks. So we don't really know, uh, spoiler. Um, but, uh, yeah, but so we already, there's already a half-life to this relationship mm. in this situation. Um, and to Tom truly, uh, yeah. 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 The, this movie is, it exists in a sci-fi world where there are impossible things that we don't currently have, not impossible, I guess, but futuristic things that we don't have yet in the real world that speculatively maybe one day we will. Um, but I would argue it's, uh, it's not, the movie is not, it doesn't dive into the sci-fi as much. Like we're, I think we're talking more about the, the ins and outs and specifics of the robotics program more than the movie really does. The movie kind of presents it as, as an element to tell this human story about human psychology and human love and loss. And the I guess the rejection of love might be one of the, the themes in it. Um, uh, what do you think of, um, what do you think of Alma as a character? How would you describe her? I think Alma as a character is super interesting. I don't feel like we see a lot of stories about women of a certain age. Um, and this woman is a professional and she seems very successful and she has, I don't know if she has a full life. Maybe I won't say that, but She's probably in her 40s. She doesn't have a child. And she does have a family. She's dealing with family issues. Um, 
but she's, she's very capable. And I, Mm. and I don't think that there's a lot of, um, there isn't really, um, you're not presented with someone who is pitiable. It doesn't really seem like there's anything missing from her life, but Mm. she is, she does also seem to be someone who wants something more, had wanted a family, had wanted a child, a partner, but yeah, I don't know. It's, I thought she was so interesting to see on film. She seemed so real. Like, I guess, I guess as I'm getting older and, and I'm alone, (laughs) I guess I found her relatable. Um, Mm. But yeah, I don't know. There was just something really nice about how capable and together she was about certain things and, um, and smart. I don't know. It, it's interesting when you said um, she doesn't have a full life. I was going to, my follow-up question was going to be, what do you think is missing if she doesn't have a full life? But you also said like, nothing seems to be missing. And I think um, if you were to ask Alma, or if you were to challenge her, uh, she wouldn't let you pity her. She wouldn't let you, you know, she's a very strong personality. And she, I think from her perspective, um, she would say, there's nothing wrong. I have everything I need. I'm completely fulfilled, whether or not that's true. I feel like she is in a, a, a position where she thinks that she's completely self-actualized and everything's great and fine. Um, but we do, as like the viewer of this movie, we get to sort of see a little bit behind that facade and a little bit of like the cracks behind that, right? Yeah, I think that there is some posturing and I think it's the posturing we all do, Mm -hmm. you know, just to get through the day because there's always something else that you want. There's always the better job. There's always the partner. There's always whatever, whatever it is. And, um, and I think she has a lot of things she fills her life with, but I think that the kind of repressed desire for having a romantic partner um, or to love, maybe mm. that's it just to like to love someone and to accept someone else's love, I think that's the thing that she downplays uh, and doesn't leave room for. She doesn't leave room to feel that pain because she has all of these other things in her life, which are good. Yeah, and in a way, it seems like um, she's kind of piled a lot of those things on top of herself in order to avoid having to deal with the things that are painful or having to deal with things that are quote unquote missing. Uh, We do see that she has an ex that she's still very close to. Um, We get their backstory later that they tried to have a child together. Um, We don't get a lot of, it doesn't go too in depth about that. It's, I I feel like it's really good storytelling where it's just enough that we get, we understand the tragedy of it. We understand the loss that, that have that drove a wedge between these two people. You know, it's very, it's very obvious why they're not together anymore, uh, even though the ex seems to still be interested in her. Um, But we also see that the ex has met somebody who became pregnant, and we see how much that affects Alma when she finds that out. 
Um, yeah. And that kind of colors in a lot of the, a lot of the lines, a lot of the stuff that, you know, she wasn't letting us see prior to that. The other side of the coin with Alma is we get to see, we do get to see her nurturing and caring side. Um, not just with Tom, there are moments where she sort of breaks down and seems to feel like a little bit bad for Tom or seems to, you know, feel like he's being mis- mistreated or she's being unfair to him and she will break and like do a little bit of a nice thing. But um, but when we see her with her students, uh, I think it's really interesting that we see that side of her. Um, there was a moment, uh, I think you and I talked about it right after we saw the movie, but um, well, well, let's talk about her work. Let's talk about like the thing that she is actually pursuing in the movie, because if I'm yeah. not mistaken, um, she doesn't, she doesn't really like, she's not signing up for this experiment, right? Like she got asked to do this quality testing for the robot. As a, yeah, it's kind of set up as a favor. I do want to make, I do, I do want to make one point before we mm. move on with this. Cause I don't want to forget about it, mm. but in terms of, um, what I had said earlier about how the movie doesn't keep the robot thing a secret, like they introduce that up front. But what remains a secret and what kind of unravels during the film, and this is, I think, kind of the central message of the film anyway, is why this woman has closed herself off to falling in love again, to being Mm. in love again, to accepting love. And that's the more challenging thing um, sometimes is how you're dealing with yourself and how you're keeping those opportunities away from yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. You think you'd think it was the robot. Like that's the big thing in this movie, but it's actually something that makes us human, which is like trying to control how we feel about something. Um, But getting back to Alma. So yes. So she, she takes on this, as a favor to a colleague or a supervisor at the museum who then kind of says, as a thank you, I will let you take this trip to go with your whole team to this place uh, where you were studying, like you were studying artifacts from, Mm -hmm. Um, or they, or to go see like a complete set of the artifacts somewhere. There's, there's a trip involved and it has to do with her research and it's, Mm -hmm. and it'll be fully funded. They won't have to worry about that. Um, and so that's kind of how she gets, yeah, Yeah. she gets roped in through that. But I think she finds out about that later. I think it's truly more a, um, a favor for this individual. And then she's like, this is crazy. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so her her uh, research is in um, translation, and it's like translating. Um, uh, I, I wish I could remember like what culture they were they were digging up that they were. Um, it's some kind of almost like a hieroglyphic, but it's yeah, some it might have other been Sumerian or something like that. Yeah, some other language um, from some other time, mm. and the poetry they're finding on these artifacts. Yep. It's the, so that's, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting thing about Alma is when we, when we start out, like we see her going into this, um, this holograph, hologram party, holograph party. I don't know the difference between a hologram and a yeah. holograph. I just realized now that I'm saying those two words side by side, but anyway, the hollow, hollow ballroom. Uh, it's, it's very holodecky from yeah. Star Trek. <laughs> 
whatever you um, want. That's it to where be. we're introduced to Tom. We're introduced to the whole concept of the robots and the love. And but then we find out that Alma's pursuit, Alma's goal, her main goal is really it's not to find love. It's not to you know she doesn't care too much about this experiment really. Um, it's to get these to publish a paper, a research paper about her findings, about the poetry of this language and what it says about about humans and what persists about our nature throughout all of time and all of cultures. Uh, but then what's interesting is the movie, the movie uh, never lets her achieve that goal. And in fact, takes it away from her like midway through. The rug mm-hmm. is just completely pulled out from under her um, because she finds out that another researcher studying the same, the same tablets came to the same conclusion, but they published first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since this is her, her, her job, her life's pursuit, that's utterly devastating to her. Um, and you and I were talking about like, right after we saw this movie, that was such a standout scene that she, she feels, she feels a personal loss when she finds out that, that her life's work is not going to be as meaningful as she thought it would. But then we also see how she, uh, she feels, I don't want to say motherly, that might be the, that might be the wrong word, but like, she feels protective of her, of her Mm -hmm. students. She feels bad for them and she consoles them and she wants to, you know, talk to them about this, this awful thing that happened to all of them. Um, Right. But I think that is really comes in. So yeah, I think you see her acting lovingly towards her students. I think you see it a lot with her relationship with her father in terms of mm -hmm. how much, how caring she is to him. But I feel like, that moment we talked about that is in response to something that Tom says to her because she goes out and she's crying while trying to smoke a cigarette or trying to light a cigarette unsuccessfully. And Tom comes to her and asks why she's crying. And she's like, don't you understand how upsetting this is? And she's thinking like, of course, he doesn't understand how upsetting this is because he's a robot and he's not capable of emotion. And I think she underestimates how he can understand a few times in the film because it comes up later Mm -hmm. when she's talking about having lost the baby. Um, And his kind of take on this is that the research is still valuable you know, it just needs to be focused in a different way because what you're finding out is that people were still using poetry back then in order to tell stories. And like the work itself is still of value, even Mm -hmm. though it's not going to be the thesis you thought it was. And also that he asks her, so these tears are just for you. These are selfish tears. And, and I think that the, I think that those, those, both of those ideas are like big parts of the movie. So one, kind of our personal, our ability to be personally preoccupied with our own pain and our own war wounds going through life and how important those things are and how they can distract from having this other perspective of seeing that life is cumulative, right? that it's not about this one thing that's going to make my name as a researcher, this one thing coming together, solving some problem of my life, that there is 
larger purpose behind what you do. And also that it's all instructive somehow. It's all useful somehow. Um, and people can get so single-minded focusing on the results that they want to get out of a situation, out of a relationship, anything that you lose the kind of larger perspective in terms of how significant that really is, um, which is something that Tom kind of brings up later in terms of the loss of the child, but then also that it's okay, that it's okay you don't get everything you want or that you don't get everything you want in the way that you had wanted it. Um, and just kind of how much larger the picture is. And I think that it's interesting to have this voice of this robot who, because he's not human, has this kind of larger perspective and also a detachment that allows yeah. him to have that perspective. Um, but then additionally, the way he offers that information and possibly be, it's because of how he's programmed to be, it is so compassionate and gentle with her, even though they are some difficult home truths. And I think that that is often not how we receive some of that information. I think sometimes yeah. we get that information and it's really brutal, <laughs> brutally offered to us. Especially so, when our pride and our ego is involved. Absolutely, absolutely. But to have it coming from someone who has no agenda other than to love you and then to still tell you the difficult things. I mean, that's that's an act of true love, right? Yeah. To yeah. be so honest. Um, that's an important distinction. He's not, he's not designed to be a coddle bot. Like he's not designed to just tell you what you want to hear and give you daily affirmations. Like he is designed to learn what makes her tick and right. what pushes her forward. And like, um, and I almost, I almost wonder if, you know, he's sort of picked up by that point that she has this aspect of her, of her, like, dealings with others and her personality where she's a little bit um guarded and she's a little bit you know uh she she like he, she needs to be challenged in that way like she needs somebody to to be like I'm not going to sugarcoat this this is how it is so what do you think of that and and like she just needs to have that said out loud um right and he does say at some point early on, you know, it's natural that I'll be making these mistakes when I first met you oh, yeah. in terms of knowing what you like, what you don't like, but I'll start learning what those things are and I'll change. And then I won't do those things again. Um, I also wonder if, because you were talking about how Tom is able to see the the more broad, broad zoomed out view of how important the work is than how much more important the work itself is than who discovers the work or who publishes the work and how that is like, it's a, it's a favor to humanity and it shouldn't be um, an accomplishment of just one person. And I want, and, and for one thing, like that's definitely, I think that's super appropriate in the sci-fi uh, film or story that the robot, a robot is traditionally depicted as like a collectivist or a hive mind mindset. 
Um, so they would be thinking of like the 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 hive over the individual bee. Uh, yeah, the Borg, Borg all the way. <laughs> and I wonder if on some level, um, and I want to get your personal opinion on this, but I wonder if on some level Alma agrees to the experiment of of testing out Tom, testing out the love bot for the betterment of humanity. Like, does she see, does she see if this is successful, this could be good for all people? Because we know herself, her quote unquote selfish motivations, which are to get the research trip to get the grant money, whatever. Um, but I wonder if on some level she's thinking like, well, you know, this could actually serve humanity. I don't know. I don't know if it goes that deep, but I do wonder if part of her agreeing to this again, out of, as a favor to her friend, colleague, supervisor, I wonder if part of it is also just the natural curiosity of, uh, an anthropologist of an, of a paleontologist. Mm. Right. And, um, yeah, how could you say no? Right. And, and especially if this is like, maybe this becomes a new way that we live to be a part of the initial research about what that could be like, what that experience is like. Um, I think that that is exciting, especially if she's, if she's looking at ancient civilizations, well, this could be how we organize future civilizations. Mm. And what is that going to look like for the people that research us uh, years from now? Especially since since it's a, a literal machine, these robots are probably going to be the record keepers of all of the, the human history from the point that they're built onward. Right. But then interesting that her kind of closing argument in terms of not recommending that these robots go into production mm -hmm. um, is that they will lead us to not challenge ourselves, to not grow, that people will become addicts to yeah. this kind of the positive reinforcement and the, the, the unwavering love. And I guess, I guess, I guess when you imagine a new relationship and we're both starting back out in the world again, uh, <laughs> it, it, looking, looking for love. Um, yeah, look us up on the apps listeners. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'd love a free dinner. No, um, <laughs> I can pay for my own dinner, but I don't. But uh, no, no, no. But I think I, when you imagine those relationships, you don't imagine dynamicism. You imagine mm. beautiful times. You imagine huga. You imagine, you know, it's cuffing season as we're recording this. So it's like, who am uh. I going to snuggle with on those cold winter nights, you know? <laughs> Um, who am I going to make mac and cheese with? And you think about all of those beautiful Instagram postcard moments. You don't think about the fights that keep you up until 2 a.m. and then making up three days later because it took you that long to cool down. You don't think about the points of friction in a relationship that, I don't want to say keep it interesting, but are maybe necessary for growth, you know, to somehow get to the next level because you're going deeper 
in with this person and you're figuring out how you still fit together or how you will still try to fit together based on your differences, your um, varying desires, your different goals, whatever. And when you are partnered with someone who is completely reflective or reflexive in terms of what you want and what you need, it's kind of disgusting because, and it, and it gets boring, right? Like after the initial, yeah. oh, he ran me the bubble bath and he cleaned up all of my stuff and whatever. Then, you know, at one point she gets very angry with him because he doesn't get angry with her, that he won't fight with her. Yeah. And there is something kind of necessary about that response just to even know that you're there, that you exist in the relationship, right? Or that the relationship yeah. is there. Let's dig into that a little because what do, what do you think that if she had spent maybe another week or another couple of weeks, and she very well might, the, the ending of the movie leaves it a little bit open-ended, but if she had um, spent more time with Tom, do you think eventually he would sort of develop a, a, a learned response to certain moods that she has where she wants to be a little, she wants him to be a little antagonistic? And that would just be like, part of how he interacts with her. And I guess if he did that, would that help her or would she just see it as artificial? Well, it's so interesting because I think the only reason that he would do that or that he would be programmed to do that, you know, part of it is what she wants, right? Because based his programming and his learning is based on what she wants. But it's also part of what, makes him seem more real. Mm. It was funny. They, they finally culminate the relationship. And I thought that when he got up in the morning, that was the most human I had seen him as the robot talking about, Oh, I slept in. I feel great. He's like stretching. He's like, did mm. I snore? That coffee smells amazing. Like that was the most natural that I had seen him. And I don't know if it's because he finally had sex with her. Um, mm. Now he's a real boy <laughs> or, um, <laughs> or, uh, or what? And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I feel like there would be a more learned aspect, but she, I mean, the, the problem, the problem with Alma in terms of, being someone who could go along for the ride of this experiment is that she's just too smart. She's mm. too much a scientist and she's looking for the flaws and she's, she's asking these essential questions about, is this just because this is what I'd imagine it to be or is this reality, but she knows it's not reality because she knows he's not real. And hmm. is it as, is the love as valuable when it involves no work on your part except acceptance, which is sometimes a lot of work on its own. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like her journey, like, like her big thing is like accepting him and how he quote unquote feels for her in her mm -hmm. life. Can I ask a, a, maybe like a more broad question, not to dive yeah. into like specifics of any of your relationships, yeah. but let's say, 
let's say you had a Tom bot, you had a, a love bot um, that learned Specifically about Specifically Dan Stevens, it that looks would be fine. Exactly That's like the model you can yeah. send to me, yes. It has his icy blue eyes. Uh, yeah, or Chris Pine, um, best Chris forever. Excellent. Um, so your choice, you get whichever one, whichever model, okay. and it uh, because it has a computer brain, because it has protocols that it follows, it learns like you like um, lemon cookies. So it you know learns how to bake you lemon cookies, and it makes the best lemon cookies. Um, and then what would you? I guess what I'm driving at is like, is there a difference between a robot learning things that you like and then doing those things more often or feeding, feeding into you um, more often, like to, with, with, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, not feeding into, indulging, indulging you is the word I was looking for versus if it's a human that's like, oh, hey, I found out this thing about you. I found yeah, out one I, of I have an answer. So I'm I have an answer. Yeah. Yeah. This is what's up. It doesn't allow her to give him anything back. Okay. Oh, like yeah. That's a you're yeah, you're alone in the relationship, right? Yeah. And what you have is a pet who gets hard at the appropriate times for you and bakes you the lemon cookies when you want lemon cookies, but you can never do anything for them. And so yeah. it, 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 it never really feels reciprocal. And so you're always in debt somehow to this thing. And also I, I would feel, I don't know if you would share this feeling, but I would feel pathetic that mm -hmm. I couldn't find a person to love me who was human I had to have a programmed thing. I mean, if he looks like Dan Stevens, that's a nice, like it would be fun. It would be fun for a couple of weeks. Like it's a nice vacation, mm -hmm. but, um, but it's an empty experience, right? Because their love is unearned, right? That's it. Yeah. And so it's an appliance at the end of the it's day. It's an appliance. And also it's, because you've done nothing to earn their love except turn them on, what value really is it of you? What have you, I think that's the other thing about this movie. This was like a, a question that came up for me. It was like, when, when in a romantic relationship, any romantic relationship, any relationship really, what do you learn about yourself from that relationship? Like what, and sometimes you learn terrible things about yourself mm. um, and that's still valuable information. But if, if the robot is there, they're just learning about you, but you learn nothing about them because mm. they're just a mirror of your desire. And so and you don't even really learn about yourself because again, going back to Alma's point about why these things should not be, it doesn't challenge you. It's not going mm -hmm. to fight you at 2 a.m. in the morning about something so that you can make up three days later. It's just going to say, okay. And I think that something that is interesting about Tom in the film is at some point Alma propositions him 
And he tells her no. And on some yeah, level, when she's when the, she's like really, really drunk when she comes back, super from the pub. drunk. Yeah. yeah. And and very angry at him. And she and he says no. And part of that is like for me, that's like, oh, programming men shouldn't take advantage of drunk women. He's programmed to be a good person and he's not going to do that to her inappropriate. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Also that doesn't sync up with love and he loves her. So inappropriate, but it was also one of the moments. She might regret this decision later. So yeah. Yeah. Taking it off the table. But it was also one of the, for me as an audience member, it was one of these more interesting moments of Tom because he was pushing back against something that she wanted, mm. um, which was to do this thing that he was like, no, I'm not interested. You know, um, you're going yeah, to bed. like you're you're to if, since we're comparing him to a, an appliance, like your coffee maker can't tell you I'm, I'm not going to make you coffee right now. Like it might break oh, down or whatever, but it can't yeah, like throw decide. that coffee maker out. <laughs> that coffee maker does right? not love you. <laughs> Like, even if you have already drank too many cups of coffee, the coffee maker is not going to be able to say, nope, you've had too much. That's I'm, I'm shutting down. Um, right. But Tom does have that somewhere in his programming. Like he has that ability, which is real. That's a really fascinating detail. Yeah. Yeah. What an interesting aspect of his programming. Yeah. But yeah, we I think that's it. it. I think it's hmm. the, I think it's the, that it's a, it's just a void. You're just like, yeah, there's only only one person investing in the relationship, really. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. The lo- it's lo- you're lonely, even though you have this quote unquote perfect companion. You're perpetually lonely, and we. There, I don't even know if uh, this is part of the robots, but uh, in, from this company. But I wonder if there's any like. I mean, the the psycho- Imagine the psychology of if she decides to stay with Tom. He doesn't age. He'll never age, even though, you know, she'll get in 10 years, 20 years, he'll still look like Dan Stevens at this point in in his prime. Or or that's another part of, you know, maybe once a year, maybe once a week, you go back to the factory and they do some adjustment. And so you're kind of aging along with your partner. Um, Would that make it better? Yeah, but that's a great point. Is this kind of a vampire love where only Mm. one person is going to age and the other person stays that age forever. And that's another way to amplify the loneliness because this person's always going to be set in this time and this moment, and you are somehow continuing on by yourself biologically. Would that make it any better if they did artificially age the robot gradually? I, I think so. I think so. Because then I mean, I guess when I think about, I think the the grand metaphor that I use about relationships, here we are giving, just giving advice on relationships. Um, I always think about it as being two people who are kind of running alongside each other. And you're, so you're headed in the same direction and maybe one person gets a little ahead and the other person catches up or maybe one person is a little behind and the one person kind of slows down a little bit, but you're always kind of like basically in the same plane going forward Mm -hmm. to the same, whatever, whatever it is. And I think that 
if you had the robot aging alongside you, I think that helps with that journey. Cause otherwise I think it just emphasizes what your body is going through without that person. That person is not, that robot is not experiencing those things. And also like, you're going to die. <laughs> it, just, yep. it just emphasizes the fact that you're going to die. The robot is not going to die. And, uh, and what do you do about that? And, you know, we all die alone. That's, that's how it goes. But the idea of going towards death when someone else can avoid that completely, that's super lonely, super lonely. And I think it would just naturally breed resentment, no matter how hard you try to resist that. You would just become yes. resentful at some point that this thing is going to live on. It's going to outlive me no matter what. Unless unless I, you could take another tack, and I don't know if this would be any healthier, but you could maybe put it in your will or something that it gets destroyed on the day that you die and like, or it gets buried with you or something like, you know, deactivated on the day that you die. I guess, I mean, that seems appropriate because- at that point, I mean, if the robot has, okay, let's say, let's say you get issued the robot at 45, right? Mm -hmm. You've got at least, you have at least 30 to 50 more years alive, right? Mm -hmm. Generous. And by the way, your robot is Dan Stevens minus Catherine Hahn. I'm just putting that out there. Oh, great choice. Great choices <laughs> all around. Um, you, so you, you're issued this robot at this age, and then you're with them for that period of time. By the time you die, I mean, the robot has probably been updated at like, we've downloaded the update. We agreed. Apple, yeah. we signed away our souls. Um, <laughs> when we click that box. Uh, so, but by the, by the end of it, you know, you've probably replaced parts. You've probably done some stuff. I mean, can you even use that hardware anymore? Like do, when you mm. scrap that robot, are you taking some of the skin? You're grafting it onto another robot. Maybe you're taking the hair. Maybe there are like certain like physical effects, but then you're probably melting it down for scrap, honestly, because it would mm -hmm. be such an old model that you couldn't reissue it. So maybe that's also something at like point of purchase, and maybe that's, maybe that's a bonus of purchase, knowing that when you die, this relationship dies. So like even in death, this robot will love you forever because it can never love anyone else because they will deactivate it and take it out of the system um, once you're dead. So like that goes with you. Uh, do you think it should know. be considered like if we, if we, if you reached that point, if the robot got to that point and it was going to be deactivated after your death, if it like having learned everything it's learned about the world and had all the experiences that it's had in its time, in its time with you, if it said, I don't want to be deactivated, like, should we consider that or should it, is it more important that it's like in the, it's in the contract, like, sorry, you're a robot, you're not a human, you don't get to make those decisions. Or should we look at it differently? If we're making these things to be like a true com human companion for somebody, shouldn't we also give it the same like ethical respect or, or choice that a human would get? Well, I don't think, I think the robot is a product. 
Okay. I don't think the robot is, I don't think the robot is created to help us keep the population of the earth at a certain level. I think the robot mm. is something you buy and therefore it is designed solely for the purchaser and therefore why should it exist after the purchaser passes away? And also if you've programmed that robot to solely exist to fulfill the needs of that individual, why would that robot ask to be alive when that individual is dead, unless it is to somehow commemorate them for the rest of their life, like a tombstone. Like, you know, like that's the only thing, right? I have an argument. I have an argument for that. Okay. Uh, Let's say you and the robot, one day you adopt children and then your children meet another like biological human and have children of their own. Now you and the Dan Stevens robot, you have grandchildren together um when you pass on dan the dan stevens bot could still arguably be grandpa it'll have a relationship with them like it would be i think it would be devastating to those grandchildren to know grandpa is is gonna be you know is gonna be incinerated or melted down for scraps or something right right i think um yeah, I see that argument, but I, I still think there's something about if their primary purpose is to be with this person and then that person goes, like, I think, I think you pull a notebook, you know, like you die mm-hmm. at the same time on the bed together, or he dies shortly thereafter, or if you know you're going to die, then you have the robot killed first for a little bit, um, Also, maybe if you, I also, you you know, I also wonder about this. If you, I wonder how many people who would be in a relationship with a robot in this manner are going to then, you know, aside from if they can or not, are going to then be seeking to adopt children. Because again, Mm. thinking about, loving into a void. Like the one thing about this relationship situation and you, it feels very narcissistic. Like the people that, the people that would really get into the, the people that are really the demographic for buying a robot for, as a partner, that is a deeply narcissistic way of loving because you're purchasing something that will just be reflective of your desires, right? Are yep. those then the people that want children? I don't know. Or maybe you only want them because there'll be many versions of you, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just, I find that, I think that's my follow-up question about that. Yeah. I'd say it's either narcissism or desperation uh, mm. because we see another character, his name I think is Dr. Stuber, Um that is, I think, a colleague of Alma's. He, he she, uh, she runs into him at some point. He was a he judge. Has, he works in the judicial system. That's right. Okay, okay. And he yeah. has a robot. I think her name is Chloe. Um, that's his companion. And he is over the moon about Chloe. He 
gets so much out of, you know, and, and his argument is, you know, he says like, look at me, I'm not the most attractive person. Like I'm, and I'm aging and at my age right now, I'm not going to find the person I'm looking for. You know, I'm, I've been alone for so long. Um, this robot, this, this Chloe bot is the answer for me. Uh, and I don't, I don't, he might be, he, uh, he might be a narcissist. He might have nar- at least narcissistic tendencies, but I saw more of like desperation in, mm. in his character. Yeah. I think that that, I think that's such an interesting character and how he presented his case to her is so interesting because I think you can come down on either side of it. You can either say, mm. here's this man. He never really found love. He's not the most attractive person. Now he's getting older. So presumably he'll get less attractive because that seems to be what happens when gravity takes over and our skin cells fall off our face. Um, Hair starts growing out of your ears and everywhere. Yeah, all all the places. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, so I think you can, and I'm I'm very torn about that character actually. so yeah, I think you can take it with that vein as, you know, this man, everyone deserves love in their life. And like, why shouldn't this man have love or feel to, that he is loved regardless of where it comes from? And also mm. that that kind of genuine desire to be in love. I mean, again, like as we, as the two of us em- re-embark into the world of dating, Um, I was thinking the other day, you know, it's important to state upfront what you're looking for. And I was like, what will my answer be if someone asks me, what am I looking for? And so I was like, well, I don't know if I'm looking for a long-term relationship because I was in one and I don't know and blah, blah, blah. But I realized that really the only honest answer to that question is I really want to be in love again. You just like, no. I just want to be yeah. in love. And I don't know if that means a long-term thing that leads to marriage or whatever, but like, I just want to, like, I just want to feel in love again. And um, mm. yeah. And, and so for that man, like if you're walking around just wanting to like give love to someone and nobody wants your love, I mean, that is just like talk about loneliness, like that is lonely. Um, Mm. But he's also presented as an older man with a much younger woman that is his robot. And she is very agreeable and Mm -hmm. she is touching him. And there is a trope that exists and is a, it exists in the world as reality. And we see it all the time of, that kind of relationship happening. And there is yeah. always a question around why is that woman with this man? What's and the if, authenticity of it? Yeah. What is the authenticity? And if there's no authenticity because she is a robot, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that, that presents another set of questions, you know, like at least it's not because she's after his money. Uh, right. In, in these <laughs> but, circumstances, her her <laughs> intentions are true. Um, but the fact that she is, she looks like a 25 year old and he looks like mm. a 70 year old, you know, that uh, there's another, there's another conversation about, 
if that, I mean, you know, 25 year olds are hot. Like we can't get around that. Like, yeah. Remember when you were 25? Yeah. Everybody, that's what everyone said. You're in the prime of your life and it's the prime of your life. It's all downhill after. Yeah. You can stay out all night. You can drink. Now I'm like, if it's 9 PM and I'm not in bed, like, (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm seeing a, I'm seeing a movie tonight and it starts at 10 45 and I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? Adventurous. (laughs) I know. Um, You, you use the term addicts earlier and this was the character I first thought of when you use that word. And I think, I think it's Alma's word. I think that's why you chose that word. Right. Cause that's literally what she says in her final assessment, like it's going to create addicts. Um, and I think this, this character, this Dr. Stuber, that's a perfect example. Like that, that seems to be the, my takeaway of, uh, of his relationship with Chloe is that it's one of like an addict indulging in the, the drug, the thing that, you know, like the dope, she obviously like triggers his dopamine response. And I think that is what we could say is his addiction is. Yeah. And that she's also the enabler. She is the drug mm. and the enabler. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't imagine that he would, uh, if there was that option to to age the robot gradually, I doubt he would, I doubt he would take it, um, which is just an interesting side of things. And speaking, because you were talking a little bit about adoption, I think on some level, Tom represents to Alma and part of the reason she resents him so much is because um, he represents officially giving up on having children. Like yes. that was at some point in her life, her her goal, her dream was to have children. It didn't work out. Um, and now if she were to accept Tom, if she were to go with Tom and, and have Tom be the rest of her life, that is, I think on her part, something she can't accept. She That would be like a little death for her. That it would be putting like, putting the definitive nail in the coffin on ever having children again you know, whether or not she's going to without Tom. Yeah. And I would expect that for a woman who wanted children, the sense of failure of having lost the baby while pregnant and then signing up for a robot partner kind of ensuring that you'll never have a biological child, certainly not with that partner, Mm -hmm. um, maybe amplifies that sense of failing just like as, as a biological woman. So not only can you not have a child biologically, you also can't find biological love. And how does that, how does that close you off from, being a full participant in the human race on some level. Mm, damn. <laughs> this movie. <laughs> it's such a, it, this movie was so great because it was, we talked about this. It's such a simple conceit, but yep. there's so many other things to think about. I don't know. Like it, it, the movie is so simple and people are so complex. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's really what it is. The worlds that live inside every individual um, and where they're coming from. And you never really 
you never really meet the whole person because you just kind of pass them at that moment in the life when you know them. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't and, know. And they're just uh, a collection of their experiences up to that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll never, you also never know all of those experiences or how they carry those things, right? Mm-hmm. Because, like, how many times do you change in a day? Like, you know, like you wake up and you feel great or you don't. Uh, And then, like, there's a malaise in the afternoon or there isn't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just there are so many variables. Yeah. Yeah, I I have days where I wake up and I have no appetite and I barely eat anything the whole day and I feel completely fine. I don't feel unfulfilled. And then I have days where I'm just ravenously hungry. I'll eat anything that's in front of me. And even after I've just finished eating it, I want more. Like, it's just, we're so, we're so all over the place. Like our, our, you know, like you think, you know, yourself, and then you surprise yourself with just, I I was planning on having a big meal, but then I don't know, just when I looked at it and I just changed my mind. I had a, I had a, I had a teacher once who said, um, the thing that's most interesting about characters, who's talking about plays, the things that's most interesting about characters are their contradictions. So they say they believe in one thing or they do a certain thing and then they do something opposite. Um, And that's the thing that really compels us to be interested in those people. And again, this kind of goes back to the emptiness of dating a robot. Mm -hmm. Um, Where is the contradiction there? You know, it's really, everything is at face value. Yeah. Uh, There's no, I guess there's these moments where they learn. And so that can be interesting when you realize that they're learning you. But again, yeah, like. But there's nothing for you to learn about that. They don't have a history. They don't have a childhood. They have no past experiences that you don't know about or that you weren't there for to experience firsthand. Right. I do wonder the kind of past that they end up assigning Tom Mm. is interesting because of his name and because she had known someone when she was growing up that she had a crush on whose name was Tom. Um, And I wonder if, somewhere in the interview process, they like hit on that memory, some brain scan that they did for her. And so they made him to be some echo of what he would have been in the future. Like what her dream. Yeah. yeah and that's like, it like, was he, did he grow up to be the, or did he, was he built to be the grown up version of her dream boy when she was nine years old? And is that the purest moment of love in a human's life? Like the, that kind of love that you have when you're a kid and like, it's all encompassing. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I think about like the first time you're in love is never, every time you love someone after that, it is never like that um yes it's never like that heartbreak it's never like that rich feeling that obsession you have about this individual and the purity of it yeah like if my high school girlfriend and I ran into each other for the first time ever right now we probably wouldn't match up like we were 
at that phase in our lives, we were at that, you know, had those experiences and we had enough in common then that it was like, oh yeah, a relationship makes sense. Um, but I do think like, if like, and this is not shade or anything, like she's a lovely person. I, you know, I see her on Facebook and everything. Um, but I would just, I think about like where she ended up, where I ended up, if we were to meet as strangers, there's no way we would just like hit it off and have that spark, have that connection. Um, so it's, it's a, we, it's, I get why from the company's perspective, they would design Tom to be that like profile of what her nine-year-old crush would have been as an adult, but it also like, it's, oh, it's counterintuitive to, to design it that way because, you know, who knows what your preferences, your, your uh, experiences and everything might've like changed about what you actually want in a partner versus what you wanted when you were nine, you know? Right, right. Um, although I, to counter that a little bit, I would also say that there's something useful about it because, you know, if you're in a long relationship with someone, the thing that keeps you in it when things get tough mm-hmm. are those initial sparks, are those like first kind of infatuation moments with that person like if you have the the memory of the depth of that love at its highest point, it's sometimes easier to go through those tougher moments, maybe partly because you're hoping it can be that way again, but also mm-hmm. knowing that something true was there, really true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, if he is generated based on this ideal, idyllic love of a nine-year-old, then that's something that you can always draw on in part. But again, that's a completely singular way of relating to that person because your idealized version of how your love is going to be and who that person is, is all made up on your own it's like um, having a crush on one of the Beatles or like any celebrity, like having, any you know, celebrity and I'll meet yeah. him and he'll be like this and whatever. Mm-hmm. Or as we were talking, uh, off mic earlier, the idea of, uh, I went on a date with someone a couple of weeks ago and we had been texting a lot and I was like, Oh, this is, he, he's the one get the wedding, uh, the wedding invitations out, get them printed. Like he's the guy. And then, uh, cause we'd been texting and I was like, oh yes, 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 yes. Rapture, rapture. And then we mm-hmm. met and it was like, oh no, like you're perfect, perfectly lovely person, but absolutely not who I had created him to be in my mind's eye. Yeah. And that's it. Like that's the, that's the space in between, um, yeah. the ideal, the idealized version for you. And then the reality of another human being who has their own experiences and their own baggage and their own interests, um, who's come into the, come into the table. Yeah. Yeah. Loving somebody versus loving the idea of somebody. Right. And sometimes people get confused with that. Like I think, Mm -hmm. um, again, speaking personally, I think there were a lot of relationships I was in because I saw the potential 
of that person, not necessarily just who they were right then when I knew them. Um, Mm. And that's profoundly unfair to them and to yourself. Yeah. I have three big questions about this movie that I would like to ask. Um, so this is a section that we call Lose Big Three. Lose Big Three, it's you and me. We're going to have fun with Lose Big Three. All right, so this is Lose Big Three for I'm Your Man. Uh, oh, by the way, the title, the actual, because t- it's a German film, um, your German pronunciation might be a little bit better than mine, so maybe you can help me out with this. Ich bin deine Mensch. Does that sound right? It wouldn't be ich... Ich bin deine Mensch. Mensch, yeah. Mensch. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds uh, that sounds like that sounds good right. fake German. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's close enough <laughs> for two non-German speakers. Um, exactly. Number one, would this movie work without subtitles? Uh, we saw it at the Angelica Theater. Shout out to the Angelica. Um, and... It's in German, obviously, with dubbed in English. I'm not dubbed in. I'm sorry, not dubbed, subtitled in in English. Um, but do you think this movie would work if you didn't understand the language and you were just watching the literally the pictures? No, I don't think so because I think uh, you don't have enough of the traditional sets of the factory of whatever he he breaks one time but we don't see any of the internal mechanizations of him as a robot mm. so i think he I, would, I forgot um he how breaks he break? in the first sequence um he has that malfunction on the dance floor and they come and take him away that's right and okay. adjust him yep. but i think otherwise he would just seem strange uh, so you would definitely get a sense of him being an other, uh, but I don't know if, you know, obviously no gold makeup, but there's no real <laughs> Brent Spiner Ted, like, head tilt <laughs> to, uh-huh. to cue you um, yep, yep. where he's like computing <laughs> things, you know, uh, yep. l- love him, love Brent. I think I agree. I think, um, Maybe like it might work with the occasional title card, but you need something. And there's a lot of nuance too. A lot of the movie takes place in in the conversations and like in what is not said in a lot of a lot of ways. And if you don't hear anything that's being said, then you have no way to read it between the lines. Right. Um, so yeah, I think I agree. Like it does require it doesn't require a deep understanding of the native language, um, which is interesting because that's something the main character is studying. Uh, but it does, I think it does require some comprehension of language to, to understand the movie. Yeah. Um, Lose Big Three, number two. There is This movie is rated R because there is a very sexy sex scene. Uh, oh, and it's I had, so sexy. It is. And I have a very particular question about it because I could not stop thinking about uh, my biggest takeaway from it was the position that they were having sex in. Did that stand out to you? And do you think there's a reason why they were in that position? Did it stand out? To, the scene stood out to me. And I maybe the position as well, just because it looked really good. Mm. And I guess I was like, mm, yes. <laughs> um, I, I don't, 
remind me of the second part of the question. <laughs> was it um, something about the position? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm <laughs> just like it's... distracted, being like, yeah, that looked really good. <laughs> uh, do you think that there's a reason that they were having sex in that position versus well, anything else that's in the Kama Sutra? It was face to face. Yep. You know, stomach to stomach. Although there was a little more stretching away from that <laughs> for camera and for pleasure, presumably, but sure, yeah. you know, that's, I guess that's the more intimate way to have sex with someone, mm. um, as opposed to other positionings. Uh, cause then you're just kind of with them. Do either of them like touch the other person's face? Do you remember if that do. happened? I think they do. It's very intimate. It's very gentle. It's very like, you know, they're looking yeah. deep into each other's eyes the whole time, like all of that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's that moment where she kind of falls in love with him. Mm-hmm. Like there, that's the space, right? Yeah. What stands out to me um, is neither of them are quote unquote on top. So there's oh, no power dynamic, right? Like the, the as depicted, uh, they're side by side. They're they're having sex as equals. I would say, like, is the way that's what I how I saw it. Like, they're they regard each other as equals. Um, not to say that, like, I want to be clear. I don't view like if if somebody's on top, that means that they're the one in power in the relationship. But it is like there is a power dynamic there. Like there is, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, I think, I think, well, I, I have to say, I think I remember it where she's like a little more on top. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think that the observation of the two of them being there together. Yeah. In, a, in the same moment, sharing that experience at the same time. I think that that is accurate and true. I agree. I agree with that. Um, in that they're equals, that they're equally sharing that moment, even though he can't have an orgasm. And that's another kind of like sad thing going back to this being a completely self involved relationship that really only exists around one person as the access Mm. because the other person can even come, you know, and there's something about that not being able to happen, which is like kind of sad. I guess another way of looking at it, not to say power dynamic, but in certain positions, uh, arguably one person could just be literally laying there and the other person is quote unquote doing the work. Um, and yes. I would say that the, the position they depicted the work the was side, shared in this position. Were, everybody's participating. Everybody. Yeah. yeah everybody's yeah. investing in it. Equally. It's very, yeah. <laughs> it's very call and response yep. uh, in the yes. And yes. And yeah. Uh, and I, I think moment of connection. I think it's a good, like a cinematic way to show that at least in this moment, they're totally into each other. She's not yes. just using him as a as like a super high-tech vibrator or anything like yes. that. Like that's not even, doesn't even enter your mind. It's like, this is just a beautiful moment between these two creatures, this, this human and this robot. Yeah, that she is, she is actively being present with him and also like sharing herself with him. 
Mm-hmm. Like there's something very, like she's really exposing herself in that space. And that is intimacy. Intimacy is, to, to me, uh, intimacy is sharing something with someone and trusting that they won't use that thing against you. Yeah. Vulnerability. Yeah. 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 Uh, Awesome. Lose big three, number three. And I think this will open up a discussion about how this movie ends um, and what, what the ending means. Um, So. Yeah, no, I mean, the ending is so like, Oh, what's going to (laughs) happen. It's a good ending. So lose big three, number three, can Tom find happiness? Is he capable of, of finding happiness with no. or without Alma? No. no. You said no? No. I say no because, again, I'm thinking again about programming. Mm-hmm. So even if, because I think if you're a robot, the closest thing to happiness you find is fulfilling your purpose, right? You're programmed to do X, you do X, happiness. Um, you're programmed to make this woman feel loved. She feels loved, happiness, success, program success. But, you know, this is tricky. This is tricky because they do have this kind of counselor visit, Mm -hmm. um, this relationship counselor counselor visit. Turns out to be a robot as well. (laughs) Yeah. And, and he kind of does... Uh, Alma a solid and doesn't talk about the problems that they're having. And so it does seem like maybe it is possible for him to take pleasure in successfully winning her over. But I think there's still the difficulty of the fact that whatever that is, is manufactured by someone in a lab. Mm. And so is that happiness authentic? I don't know. But then he does seem to despair when he leaves. There's a moment where he like rests and then he has like a new idea and then he goes to this place and waits for her essentially. Um, I I think that moment is fascinating because where he rests, like where he stops literally is next to a recycling bin where people put their cans and bottles and I do think that he has a moment of realizing I'm a can or bottle, you know, I'm a, an aluminum can. I, yeah. th- I'm going to be broken down and repurposed yeah, and he, for parts. And he puts himself out with the trash. Like that's yep. what he does. And it's so sad. But, but again, I think this goes back to the ultimate problem that Alma has with the program which is the fact that there's still artificial objects, you know? Um, So even if the happiness is programmed, how can that be real happiness? I don't know. I, that's so tricky. That's so tricky. Mm -hmm. It's also hard because because Tom is, you know, he's endeared us, but also it's because it's Dan Stevens and Mm -hmm. you want good things to happen to and for Dan Stevens. Um, you know, like if you're invested in the actor, that's like half the work done 
for the movie. Um, but it's hard to divest from the personality playing the robot and just think of it as a robot. If it was some other no-name actor or some German, famous German actor who I wasn't aware of because I don't live in Germany, or if he was less handsome, but he couldn't be less handsome, right? Because he's a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, then it would be easier maybe to be so clinical and be like, well, you know, whatever, it's totally impossible. But it's, it's, it's tricky because of casting. It makes it more difficult. Do you think when he goes, when he does leave and instead of going back to the the uh, facility, he ends up at that bench where, you know, she had carved her initials or whatever. Does he go there because he knows she'll come look for him or does he go there for his own reasons? You know, honestly, I, I'm so puzzled about the ending because I don't even know if he actually went there or if she drove there and the whole last scene is her imagining. And we really get to that moment where the, um, I guess this whole podcast has spoiled this movie. So I'm just going to spoil the end. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Finally, once and for all. We assume you've seen the movie. She has this beautiful monologue at the end and she talks about, how she would lay on the table and keep her eyes closed and hope that he would kiss her. And she would sometimes feel him hovering over her and that maybe, you know, he would kiss her this time, but she never knew. And then she'd open her eyes and he'd be gone or whatever. And she closes her eyes on the bench and that's it. Like then the movie ends. Right. So my big question is, we've already seen them have sex. So it's not like we're waiting for the kiss because we've already had the kiss somehow. So my question is, does she go to this place knowing that it, you know, it still evokes this memory. It evokes the memory of the crush that she had that she then kind of assigns to Tom later on. Um, And that on some level, Tom, her robot, will always be waiting in that space for her because that is where she like places him in her experience, in her mind, uh, because that's where that love stemmed from that she then later assigned to him, whatnot. So do you go there because that memory of both of those people is held in that space and then where you were mm. in that experience? And then she does what she used to do and maybe hope that when she opens her eyes this time, he will be there. Because it's like there's something about the isolation of her in that last shot doing that monologue where he is not participating at all. Um mm that is so interesting to me. And that makes it feel like maybe this isn't actually happening. Maybe this is an interaction she has imagined for herself. And that's the thing that she's taking away from the entire experience is the memory of this love that this robot gave her but also knowing how she came down so hard in terms of her feedback on the clinical trial, 
it's difficult for me to accept both of those at the same time. Um, yeah. That like she would understand how hard, like, and especially we, and we see her in these scenes where she's alone and she's, you know, she's teaching class. She's at the bar alone. You know, her life is moving on. When she sees him in that final scene, she says, you know, I wish I'd never met you because now life without you is just life without you, which is like, mm-hmm. what a great line. What a great that line. That is a great, yeah. Um, uh, so there's something about like, you know, like you visit places in your life because you associate with them a time in your life, a person, and to visit those spaces again is to visit that moment in your life, right? And so maybe that final scene is her just going to that space to visit that lovely memory she has of this love that came into her life. And it also aligns with that love that she had when she was nine years old. So, so yeah, I mean, that was like my big question about the last thing. It was like, is this actually happening or is this what she would imagine him to do? Like she would think he would go to that place Mm -hmm. and wait for me. And so I'm going to go out there and just see if he's there. And like, if he's not there, then she's still has that thing. Um, so that was like, that was a hypothetical I gave myself, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The, the last scene is so, there's so many levels working at the same time, like waiting forever for someone in one place. And yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think your take on it is fascinating because I took it at face value. I thought he is physically there. And the question in my mind was whether or not that that proves that he has free will or not. And I was looking at it like the the big question at the end is not um, whether or not this is a real moment, whether or not he's really there or not, which now I am thinking that, uh, which is awesome. Cause that like, that's a whole other layer to it. But I was thinking like the question that was left unanswered is does, does she decide to stay with Tom? Does she decide to, or not, not, not necessarily stay with him. Cause I think her mind is made up about that, but does she decide to send him back to the factory or does she, you know, release him, like let him go off and be a person and discover himself or something. But again, I don't know if there's anything to discover because when he had his freedom, what did he do if he really went there? He went to this place waiting to see if she would show up, you know, like still, even if it's, even if it's part of your programming for survival, because you're still dependent on that person coming around to love you in order for you to stay alive as a robot, right? Mm -hmm. That's still you're still vying for that and your actions are still based around trying to be available for this individual. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not like he was like, well, I'm going to go to the casino. You're like, I don't like wherever robots go (laughs) to hang out after they've been fired. Um, You know, it's. Oil bar. Yeah, oil bar, get a little <laughs> greased up. But um, 
Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Again, I think it's still, it's still so dependent on, on Alma and on Alma's personal experience and on what Alma would find to be so poetic, you know, him waiting there for her with his suitcase. Uh, Yeah. And he even says like he would have just continued waiting. Right. He doesn't say, yeah. Yeah. That he had waited a few days. No. Um, Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. Um, I, do you have, we have another section called what's your snack, but before we get to that, uh, do you have anything, any other thoughts or notes about the movie? No, I mean, again, I think I'm, I'm just so interested in how much discussion we've been able to pull out of, again, what seems to be such a simple conceit. And I think the fact that it's such a small cast, you know, the world is very insular in terms of the amount of people the audience is introduced to. And it's really mostly just the two of them in her apartment. And there's something nice about the kind of pot boiling that can go on. Um, on some level, it reminds me of this play called Tender Napalm. And uh, that play is very, it starts out very strange. And there are these two people, I think traditionally it's a man and a woman, um, who are saying these really strange and terrible things to each other, talking about taking a grenade and putting it into your ass and like slowly pulling out the pin and um, and this idea of like total destruction and then talking about like stars. And, and then as the play goes on, you realize what their relationship was and 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 there's all of this talk about space and stuff. And then at some point you realize that the language at the beginning of the play is really reflective of the depth of feeling that can exist between two people and the kind of world they can create for and with each other and the space that sits between them. And then the utter need for destruction once things have gone horribly wrong and it all falls apart. But it's this, it's this heightened, metaphorical, violent, huge language that doesn't seem to make any sense, doesn't seem grounded in reality, but is really reflective of the size of the emotions that people carry for each other. And there's it's kind of the same thing in this movie on a much smaller, much more naturalistic level where again, you're, you're reminded of how much can happen between two people in such a short amount of time and the kind of things that we don't have language for in terms mm-hmm. of emotional rapport or, or what, what, what can exist, what world exists between two people, um, particularly when romance is involved. So, yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think I'm just so, I'm, I loved all of your questions. This has been such a great conversation, but I'm also so amazed that 
we can delve this deep again into something that seems so simple. Um, that, that, yeah, that's fascinating to me. And I guess that that's uh, a tribute of, of this film. Yeah, an attribute. Well said, very well said. Thank you. All right. So this is a section of the podcast that we call What's Yo Snack? I don't have a theme music, unfortunately. I haven't gotten Ryan to improvise anything. Uh, actually, listeners, if anybody has, um, if you want to write a theme song and send it in, I'll take your suggestions. Uh, but What's Yo Snack? Leah, when you go to the movies, um, we, we I, I showed up a little bit late, so it's my fault. Um, but we didn't have popcorn or anything when we saw this movie. Um, do you have a favorite movie snack or, um, like, yeah, what's your snack? That's the question. (laughs) My snack at the movies is traditionally gummy bear Haribo. Um, the German gummy bears appropriately. Yes. Yes. Uh, they're my favorite, even though they're, they're usually hard and they kind of get caught in your teeth. But that's the, what the, that's what's the best thing about them, the texture. <laughs> I'm, I also agree. Haribo gummy bears are the superior gummy bears. Yeah, no, I think that they're they're the best gummy bears by far. And right now they have all these different like Halloween versions. So I got a Halloween mix uh-huh. the other day. Today I got um, s- sour vampire bats. Uh, so those are so nice. cool. But yeah, I mean, really any Haribo, twin snakes, love tw- twin snakes, Love mm. a star mix. Um, don't love cola, but oh, I like the fizzy colas. I like the fizzy. You like cola fizzy colas. I yeah. like the peaches, peach slices. I've never really Those had watermelon. Okay, um, but uh, yeah, no Haribo. I have bag of cherries. Um, nice. So yeah, all all nice. those all the all the gelatins, jelly candies, forever. <laughs> awesome. One last bonus question: If we were to replace any two characters in this movie with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, who would you replace, and how would that improve the film? Uh, Whoopi Goldberg would be the woman who is the relationship counselor. One hundred percent. Yep. Would be so. That would be so fulfilling. And then to find out she was also a robot, that would just be even a greater reveal. I can just Mm. Whoopi would handle that so well. I just know. Yep. Um, And then Danny DeVito, maybe uh, the judge who has his own robot lover. I think that that would add even more intrigue into that relationship. Um, and like his, his, the pathetic nature of the judge, Mm uh, I think, I think Danny DeVito would really emphasize that, I guess. Great choices. I do want to see the version of this movie where they play it completely straight faced, but Danny DeVito plays the Dan Stevens character. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they, and it's just, yeah. He's somebody's 10, you know? Good point. That's that's okay. very true. <laughs> Everybody is somebody's 10. That's it. I I was at brunch recently and someone was talking to me about going traveling somewhere at a certain time of year and they were like, "Yeah, I got to go where I'm cute." And I was like, "That's it. That's the key. <laughs> go where you're cute. Find <laughs> find your demographic and go there. Sell, sell, sell." Well said. 
Um, we don't really rate the movie, but we rate the robots. Would you say that um, this movie is a plus one, neutral, or minus one for robots in general? Ooh, oh, um, I'm going to go neutral or minus one because mm. I think it made a good argument for why we should not have robot partners, but I think Dan Stevens's perspective that he was able to offer Alma um, was so valuable. And so it might be nice to have robots for that kind of wisdom. So that would be my neutral vote. But overall, I think it, I think it again adds to the argument that we are better off without robot partners. I think I agree. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think I agree with Alma's final assessment at the end of it, um, that it would it be the, the biggest danger is that it would create basically a society of addicts, mm -hmm. uh, even more so than I guess our, our uh, pharmaceutical companies have done. <laughs> it is kind of an interesting argument for pain though, right? Because if you're... Mm. In pain, um, you know, maybe you're striving to do better, to be better, to distract yourself from the pain by achieving other things. And if you're happy all the time and fulfilled, why would you bother to explore those things? You know, like there's no, there's no balance, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no sun without the rain, that sort of thing. Well said. Uh, so Leah, thank you very much for being on Robots vs. Dinosaurs today. I had such a great, con we, uh, we had such a great conversation about this movie. Um, I really, really enjoyed talking to you about it. Um, tell the listeners uh, just where, if, if you want them to find you on social media or anything, if you don't want to, that's, you can leave that out. Um, I don't know, I'll cut at this, but um, just tell the listeners where they can follow you or, or find you if they want to know more about you. Sure. I'm on Instagram and I post there very irregularly, but I'm going to, I'm earnestly going to try to be better about it. And you can find me at Leah M G X. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of it right now. Just the Insta. And then my website is also Leah Awesome. And those links will be in the show notes. Fab. All right. Um, I'm really bad at saying, uh, closing out and saying goodbye at the end. So I'm going to throw it to you, Leah. Say goodbye to our listeners. Well, Lou, thank you so much for this conversation. It was super engaging. And maybe I'll watch a dinosaur movie and I can come back. But um, you can also edit that out. <laughs> no, I want, like, to, I want you to go pitching, back. We should talk I'm about pitching that. myself. Um, no, but I had such a great time. And listeners, I hope that you see this movie if you haven't already. And if you have, I hope you found this to be an interesting and engaging discussion of a film that was really, really great. Really great. Um, but thank you again. And thanks for tuning in. Avita Is that it? Avita Yes. A Wiedersehen. A Wiedersehen. That sounded German. <laughs> <laughs>
change. Maybe once a week you go back to the factory and they do some adjustment. The camera zooms in on me. So we get out. some high proof alcohol. We get gasoline. Anything that says What funny. makes our lives worth living is our mortality. If there were not mortality, we wouldn't be passed. Luckily for me, most of the beauty pageants that I've um, participated in don't. I've done my fair share of blood. Man. I've always liked showing myself off naked. Got up out of the seat, walked to me, and then slapped me. Spontaneous conversation with people from around the world on Stranger Than Christian, available on your favorite podcast app and at strangerthanchristian.com.